I remember looking down and seeing trees shaking and this huge powder cloud and um, just being shaken and also just feeling like I'd gone through the looking glass into another world and kind of part of me was like, wow, let's do that again. Is that this stuff happens, it just happens so fast. Um, and the change and the power that's unleashed is so dramatic and it's so abrupt. And then the loss is so abrupt for a lot of people that just think it's really hard to, you know, fully walk away from that. And I think people that are survivors of that carry a lot with them that they're not necessarily talking about or that comes up a lot. And developing habits and practices that are really dynamic, that actually meet the conditions that are out there, um, is something I wish I could figure out ways to teach people. This is Blaze Rudin, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer and open snow visit opensnow.com to get started with a free trial and enter the discount code avalanche podcast at checkout to receive 30 percent off your first year of open snow all access the goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches Additional support for today's episode is provided by Six Point Engineering. Based in Nelson, British Columbia, Greg Johnson and his team merged the disciplines of avalanche risk management, structural, and geotechnical engineering. Find out more, explore past projects, and get in touch at sixpointeng.com. The IPA Collective is built for snow professionals with some of the world's best brands available in the program such as the North Face, Osprey, Fisher Skis, Fly Low, Smith Optics, and Heli Hansen. They have over 90 brands that will help you be better equipped for your winter work while keeping you comfortable and stylish 24-7. Getting connected with the IPA Collective is a simple process that just involves a short registration at www.ipacollective.com. Then send in your credentials and you're good to go. The IPA Collective is the only pro program that connects you directly with the brands, so no goofing around with third-party providers. This direct relationship allows you better product availability and faster shipping. The IPA staff works seven days a week to ensure your application is reviewed and approved quickly. Find out more at ipacollective.com. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It's hard to believe we are already in the last week of February. Man, where does the time go? We've got a great episode queued up for you today. I share with you a conversation I had with Blaze Reardon back in November. Blaze has contributed a great deal to our community. Through our conversation, he conveys the awe-inspiring feelings he gets from spending time in snowy mountains, but also the respect he has for the power of snow and avalanches. He not only is a veteran avalanche forecaster, having worked in Northwest Montana, the Sawtooths, and Colorado, but he's also the former editor of the Avalanche Review, 
and author-editor of the most recent Snowy Torrance volume. Tune in as Blaze reflects on what set the hook for him and some of the lessons he's learned along his path. Welcome to the show, Blaze. How are you doing today? Doing good. It's great to have you on the podcast again. Of course, we uh, we rendezvoused last year with the live edition of the Snowy Torrance. Uh, that was a really fun show to do with you all, but it's really nice to have you back. What is going on in the Flathead Valley these days? Uh, people started skiing for the first time really this weekend. We got enough snow up high. The valley is dry, but up high, people are scratching out some turns, and uh, everybody's anxiously waiting for more. We had a lot of snow on the ground this time last year, so people are thinking there should be more, but we're pretty average. Yeah, chomping at the bit. I think a lot of people are. We're recording this, uh, what is it, November 19th right now, and um, y'all just had your your snow and avalanche workshop last weekend, I think. How did that go? Uh, It went really well. We had a pro night and then uh, the main event on Saturday, and uh, 107 people at the pro night, which is kind of remarkable, everywhere from Silver Mountain in Idaho and Missoula and Bozeman and Fernie up there in the great white north of Canada came down. Um, yeah, and then a couple hundred people in our local event. It's great. It's really kind of amazing to see that kind of turnout for an event here. So it's great. Yeah, awesome. Well, for those who don't know Blaze, Blaze has a, a long history in the snow and avalanche arena. Um, I believe you grew up in Ohio and through some twists and turns, Ended up, um, I think, in the Flathead Valley. You're going to have to correct me on some of my timeline here. Um, But you have kind of a long history in the Flathead Valley uh, working for Glacier Country Avalanche Center uh, back in the day and then helping to develop the avalanche forecasting program for the Going to the Sun Road. Um, Somewhere along there, you ended up in the Sawtooth and and were an avalanche forecaster for the Sawtooth Avalanche Center and then bounced your way over to the Roaring Fork Valley and forecasted for the CAIC there before returning back to the Flathead Valley. Um, and you now serve as the director of the Flathead Avalanche Center. Talk to me a little bit about some twists and turns along the way and fill in some blanks that I probably missed there, please. I think the one twist or piece that's missing from that really excellent summary is my time in the Salt Lake area in the Wasatch in the early 90s. I moved out there to go to grad school for creative writing. I'd been working as a ski patroller in West Virginia, uh, which doesn't really have much of an avalanche problem, and wound up working for the Forest Service in the summer on trails and then hanging out with the snow rangers and avalanche forecasters. My joke is that I fell in with the wrong crowd, and I got pretty distracted from my creative writing degree, though I did finish it, and uh, really fascinated uh, by snow and avalanches. And that kind of became my focus after that. So skiing and spending time outdoors, um, that the the hook was set pretty early for you, right? Like, how did you develop that coming from Ohio and then and then sounds like West Virginia, but um, talk about that process. I think the hook for being outside was, I mean, always there. It's, in Cincinnati, it wasn't like skiing was readily accessible. I mean, 
my first ski experience was a pair of used cross country skis on the golf course or when it snowed skiing around the neighborhood at night because the roads weren't plowed and you could have continuous snow. Um, and then they'd plow it in the morning, it would all melt. Um, and that kind of set the hook for me for winter, just really enjoyed winter. And then eventually learned to ski as an adult after I got out of college um, in West Virginia on Ski Patrol, Canaan Valley. And yeah, I just kind of went from there. What are some early memories that you have of, of venturing into the backcountry for the first time? Well, I think in, in a funny way that I was in college and I was in uh, Europe and I was on my spring break and I went to the Pyrenees and uh, it was springtime and there's a few other people in this hut. I was solo and there's a lot of snow around. They were skiing. I couldn't understand why they got up so early and left the hut so early. And then I remember walking around and postholing in the wet snow. And now, of course, I'm like, wow. <laughs> All right, good timing there. Um, but I think that was kind of an early experience in the backcountry, but not really realizing how it's in avalanche terrain, climbing peaks and wandering around post holing in the snow. And then uh, moving to Salt Lake. I mean, I'd always cross country skied, but actual backcountry skiing, making turns downhill is a thing in the Wasatch. And so I started learning how to do that when I moved to the Wasatch. Free heel gear, uh, leather boots, a lot of falls. I remember the day I learned to parallel on my tele skis. It was great. It was in Big Cottonwood. Nice. And and were you just going out with friends, or were there some influential mentors that that you met during that time? I was going out with friends, but uh, because I was working for the Forest Service on trails, I'd met a lot of the snow rangers. Al Susie and Dave Ream and um, Doug Abramite in particular. And so even though I was still learning to backcountry ski, they'd let me go out with them. And so I was starting to learn. And I can actually remember one trip in particular. I kind of think of it as an Alice in Wonderland moment where you drop through. We I went up with Dave Ream and a couple other forecasters and just sort of followed them around. And they kept each one of them would jump on this cornice and then ski off and kind of discuss because nothing happened. And um, everybody went a little farther out. And so I was the last person and went a little farther out and zippered a couple hundred feet of cornice right below me and uh, took Dave with me. We didn't go anywhere. We just fell about eight feet, but the whole slope, two dog slide. I remember looking down and seeing trees shaking and this huge powder cloud and, um, just being shaken and also just feeling like I'd gone through the looking glass into another world and kind of part of me was like, wow, let's do that again. Yeah. So that was probably, that was my first real experience triggering an avalanche, seeing an avalanche in motion and it's pretty unforgettable. Up in day's fork there. Hey. Yeah. And then of course, one of the other forecasters yelling at me, you've killed Dave, you've killed Dave. And, he couldn't see Dave. It was right below him because of the fractal line. And I'm like, no, Dave's okay. <laughs> was that like a pretty big wake up moment for you that like, this is, this is a real hazard and, and you needed to kind of learn a little bit more about it and, and lean into some of these influential people around you. I think what I was came away with was this sort of awe at the power of the thing. Like 
the speed with which it happens and the um, powder cloud and the force. I mean, there were trees shaking around and I mean, at least that's my memory. <laughs> um, I just remember being utterly kind of awestruck by the, just the power and speed and, and you know, change in everything. And so obviously it could be dangerous, but it was also fascinating. Yeah. You might say a curious fascination, hey? Yes, I developed a very long-term curious fascination with that phenomenon. <laughs> so so then what happened in, in your path? You know, did you just kind of ball up the writing degree and throw it over your shoulder and just dive into more skiing? Or how did how did that kind of influence your, your path? Um, I started kind of seeking out more training with um the forecasters and uh I went to the National Avalanche School. I went to the ISSW at Snowbird in 1994, where I got really exposed to the whole international aspect of it and just the breadth of the avalanche field. Um, I moved to Montana with my wife at the time and uh, wound up working for the Forest Service using my writing degree for NEPA documents, which was pretty tedious, and uh, kept trying to find opportunities for avalanche work, eventually wound up working as a seasonal forecaster for the local forecast information center in the Flathead, the Glacier Country Avalanche Center at the time for a season. And then uh, moving over to the U.S. Geological Survey in Glacier National Park, uh, doing climate change research over there. And one of the things my boss tasked me with was finding some avalanche related research I was helping the road crew out with some avalanche safety classes. They have no forecasting program at the time. And they've been 70 years of clearing that road without any formal avalanche forecasting, though there'd been, as I found out later, a number of efforts to improve avalanche safety on the highway for the crews. And then kind of proposed that the USGS and the Park Service do a forecasting program and for a number of reasons, pressure on the park to get the road open earlier, uh, they adopted it. And so 2003, we started that program. I was the first forecaster. We also hired Chris Lundy, who is now at the National Avalanche Center and was at the Sawtooth Center for a long time. I think the weekend before Chris arrived, we had a ginormous D3 to D4 wet slide cycle and Suddenly we realized we had a real problem and we didn't know anything about it. And he'd been, I believe he'd patrolled at Bridger, but, and he just finished his master's degree, but it was a really unique opportunity for two people early in their careers to actually develop a program. Like what are the protocols? Where's the weather station? Um, how do we best forecast for this? Well, how do we communicate this? And we made a lot of phone calls to people some of the forecasters like Craig Wilbur over in um, the Cascades for uh, Washington DOT, who had a lot of experience with clearing roads and just kind of put it together. Chris decided we needed a database and started figuring out how to code. And now that's all he does. <laughs> now he does more than that. And yeah, so it's just a tremendous opportunity to develop something from the ground up. And uh, it's still going. This coming year will be the 
21st year. Um, and uh, there's some guys on the crew that were there when we started. And sometimes I get to go up in the road in the spring, day or so a year, and it's great to see them and great to see the changes and um, how much they value it. And yeah, a whole new cast of characters is involved in that program now. But um, yeah, it was a tremendous opportunity. Super cool. And for those who might not know, the Going to the Sun Road goes through Glacier National Park and is closed during the winter. And then there's a big push to open that and clear the road, which which runs under numerous very large avalanche paths um, during the spring shed, right? Yeah. So when they designed the road, they instead of a lot of switchbacks, they put in one switchback in this gradual rising traverse across miles of uh just below the continental divide and so the road runs mid-track through all kinds of avalanche paths um some which are capable of producing d4s even wet slabs and um so clearing it is quite the operation and then the east side it has some of that as well not as much and before the program started had had there been some incidents with the road crew Getting hit by avalanches? Yeah, that's some pretty good um, kind of homegrown knowledge. But in the 50s, there was a fatal accident, killed two people and left one guy pretty severely injured for the rest of his life. Um, they tried some interesting things like uh, flying jets up the McDonald Valley uh, to uh, military jets to uh, set off sonic booms to trigger slides. I found this out later, digging around the archives. And... Uh, at one point, I think Ed LaChapelle was up there. I talked to him about it briefly the year I asked the W4 he passed, and we never got a chance to finish the conversation. And they even had a 75 howitzer at one point, briefly, um, which they would not do now. And uh, so there were some efforts, but nothing consistent. And, you know, the forecasting program is a great boon to the workers there. It really improves worker safety, and it really helps the park out with a lot of information as well. And then We've come out, the USGS has come out with a number of avalanche research, uh, pay, you know, studies and papers. Um, Chris and I at first, and then Eric and has published and Zach Miller have published another number as well. And so, you know, that was the hook for getting the USGS involved and, and it's worked. So a lot of wet snow and glide snow avalanche research. I count myself as incredibly fortunate to have had that opportunity. Um, it's, I think it's great. It's really, I mean, in some ways it would have been great to have been mentored through a program, come into that program when it existed, but it, it didn't. And I took the mentorship that I'd had in the Wasatch and all the contacts and people I developed down there and was Chris and I were able to phone a friend all the time and get some ideas about how to do some things. And it, it's turned out to be pretty cool. Yeah, it seems like a really cool program and talking to some other folks that have, have worked there and stuff, it, it, it sounds quite unique, but it's, it's not really work for the whole winter, right? Like that, that no. kind of starts in late April or thereabouts. They start plowing the first week in April and it's usually done, forecasting is usually done in end of May. So it's kind of a two month thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was a real chance for me to get into the daily work of making some decisions and thinking about 
forecasting, not thinking about, but forecasting natural hazards and um, being used to be in the field, figure things out for all those protocols. It was great. At some point there, you were hired by the Sawtooth Avalanche Center. Um, and, you know, how long had the Sawtooth Avalanche Center been around when you when you started working there? Um, I started working at the Sawtooth in the winter of 08, 09, I think. And I was in grad school at the time. I'd working at the USGS and doing papers, I'd realized as a guy with a creative writing graduate degree, I needed a lot more science. And so I'd gone to school for glaciology, gone back to grad school at the University of Montana for glaciology. And um, uh, I would spend, I started spending the winter quarter down in Ketchum. So like December through March in Ketchum, uh, working at the Sawtooth and then spring and summer quarters, semesters doing my grad work. Um, Janet, I think, well, there'd been an old program there with Butch. Um, and then Doug Abermite moved up there in the mid nineties and, um, the forest service was trying to standardize or develop these regional avalanche centers. And he recruited Janet Kellum, um, to be, uh, the director or to work as a forecaster and then, um, the director and she hired Chris Lundy, um, after a couple winters, after a couple seasons of him being on the sun road. And then the two of them recruited me to come down in 0809 for wintertime daily backcountry forecasting. So that's a little bit of a different realm kind of shift in the focus to more public hazard communication. Um, I sent some emails back and forth with, with Janet before our interview here, and she kind of prompted some stories. Um, she, she remembers one of your first solo forecasting shifts was around Christmas and, and the office was totally snowed in. Uh, what do you remember about that morning? Uh, yeah, it was, what I remember is that I'd driven down for the, from Missoula, Oh, maybe two weeks before, and it was really dry. It was classic. I now see it as a understand it as a classic central Idaho pattern, but it'd been enough snow, it really dry, it was shallow, it faceted, and then often you get these big storm systems right around Christmas. I think I remember just like uh where was I living at the time? Just trudging into work through all the snow and like barely being able to get into the office because we didn't do anything from home at that point. Um which was actually kind of nice because walking to work, you know, you're outside for, I was outside for 20 minutes to half an hour. And I just remember trudging through all that snow, trying to get to the office and then forecast. And then the thing that really got me was getting out in the field and just seeing how remarkably sensitive it was. It's a very different snowpack than um, Northwest Montana, which is a two to three meter snowpack in the, by the end of the season. And, doesn't generally have deep facets at the base and um and just to see that uh instant reactivity and that was my first real experience with a depth or more continental snowpack it was you know fascinating as well so some pretty influential people there that you worked with um i'm sure influenced your career any other memories from from your time in the sawtooth didn't have that many accidents fatal accidents when i was there or I'm not sure why, but um, 
I do remember one that involved a party of fairly well-known and very active local skiers and um, the width of the slab and how far it broke and um, just all the human dynamics that were involved in that accident. When I was working for GCAC, there'd been an accident on a day, I wrote the forecast, but it was way deep in. It was, um, we did get out and investigate it a little bit, but I think this one in Ketchum um, really impressed me or it really struck me for both, you know, the awful consequences of getting caught in a slide. It really brought it home. Also, just the effects on a community. I think that was pretty important. Also, I was out in the field with Janet that day and we were up on digging a snow pit and the highway is right below you. It's only a few miles, Highway 75. It's not that far below you um, most of the time. And it was really cloudy and we heard a helicopter working up the highway, um, which we later found out was a heli ski company um, flying just behind the van that they used because they couldn't see anything. And to get to the accident site, they were just Basically, um, the pilot locked onto the rear of the van and just followed the van up the highway. Um, but Janet instantly knew who was involved in the slide. She's like accident and she named the party that was in the slide. And, um, we went down there and, um, it was also a lesson to me in knowing your community from Janet. Um, so yeah, a lot of lessons from Janet. I would just add to that that Janet said in her correspondence, Blaze was a steady presence through it all. I do feel that particular accident is one of the several that had so much impact on the community. And Blaze's real real strength was his ability to connect and his sincere interest in the people and the community. So I think that kind of speaks to what you were just talking about is as avalanche forecasters in these mountain communities are are integral parts of the community and provide information and support and guidance. Um, but it, it really seems like it strengthens strengthens those communities, right? Yeah, I think maybe in ways I didn't understand at the time, but after events like that and then snowy torrents, people look at an avalanche forecasting job as really glamorous and or like, oh, you just get to ski around all day and um you know, one of the reasons I like it is I get to be outside a lot. Um, and I get to think as well as um, move around the mountains. There's a role for the forecast center and the forecasters in, um, well, not being like the fun police or the Debbie Downers, but to always be aware of the seriousness of and consequences of what we're doing. And also be, I think I wind up hearing a lot of things in interviews with people with survivors that they're not telling other people. And maybe that's another reason that I'm very aware of the consequences of both the job and the activity of being in the backcountry. And uh, I think it's really important to carry that with you in your interactions with people and your understanding of what happened in an accident and not be judgmental and, you know, I told Drew Hardesty one time, like, yeah, he asked me something about investigating accidents on what lesson I had. And I'm like, yeah, every accident could be yours. 
I think every time I look at these, I could see making the same set of decisions myself and just a lot of the consequences. It's kind of hard to articulate. I don't know if I'm making much sense, but I think that sense of what can happen to people on what is often they set out for one of the best days of their lives and it turns into one of the worst. Just keeping that in mind, even though people want to be stoked and everything else, it's not like you got to bring them down, but I think it's really important to have that and to be able to talk to people about those really horrible events because they last a long time for those people. And, and the ripple effect through the community um, from these accidents is, is pretty staggering sometimes. Um, yeah. So you've investigated quite a few avalanches, um, but you've also leveraged your writing degree. You were previously the editor of the Avalanche Review and, and more recently have, have been an author of the Snowy Torrents, which chronicles avalanche accidents in, in the United States. What have been some themes that you've clued into through your work with the Snowy Torrents? I, you know, a lot of the accidents we're investigating happened as far back as the 1986. And um, I think we're currently up to 2004. So that's 18 years of accidents to Spencer and M and I, uh, over 400 case studies that we've read, written or edited and researched and a lot of interviews. The thing that really stands out to me is how long and how hard it is for a lot of the people that are left behind and, or the people that are involved, um, you know, 20 years later, people, you know, that was 18 years, but I mean, I'm asking people in the late, you know, 2018, 19 and about accidents that happened 20 years before and they're still breaking down in tears. Yeah. the, The effects of these accidents just linger for a long time. And, I wonder sometimes, like, I don't know if this is true, but my impression is that avalanche accidents seem to strike people in communities harder than a lot of accidents. And I think it's because people walk out the door thinking they're going to have the best day in their life and then they never come home. You know, they're not setting out like, oh, I'm out to do something dangerous and hope it works out. I mean, but I think they walk out the door on ready to have the best day of their lives and one of the you know most memorable days and then they don't come home. And um, I think that's really hard on the people that are left behind. I think it's really hard on the people that uh, survive these accidents. Um, I think it, it goes back to what I was saying about that two dog incident, you know, that got me really fascinated is that this stuff happens. It just happens so fast. Um, and the change and the power that's unleashed is so dramatic and it's so abrupt. And then the loss is so abrupt for a lot of people that I just think it's really hard to, you know, fully walk away from that. And I think people that are survivors of that carry a lot with them that they're not necessarily talking about or that comes up a lot. So that's, I think, one of the things that's come out of, you know, all those case studies and 
real-time accident investigations and other things. What do you think is carried by the forecaster who may have written the avalanche forecast that day when, when bad things happen? I mean, this is, it's heavy, right? Like, no, it is. I don't mean to be a downer, but the longer I do this, I think the more aware of that weight I am and the more aware of those effects that I am. And, um, I think, you know, for me, I probably carry some accumulated stress injury, um, you know, death by a thousand cuts. I don't know if this is a rationalization, but, you know, I think about people that are doing operational forecasting, like I was on the going to the sun road and there, the pressure is not to get it wrong. Right. Because if you get it wrong, somebody's going to get hurt or killed. But as a backcountry forecaster, I get it a little bit wrong every day. Um, uh, danger rating is not quite right for one elevation band or the avalanche size is a little off, you know, but that's not something that kills people. You know, that maybe isn't quite the right information, but it's ultimately not the thing, you know, there to see what they do with that information. Um, and so I feel like the pressure on me as a forecaster is always to do a better job. Um, it's a different pressure. And then if something happens on a forecast, obviously the first thing you do is look at your forecast to see if you did describe the conditions well. But the other is I kind of feel like the other team scored. Um, the other team has black uniforms with skeletons on them um, and they scored and maybe you didn't do anything wrong, but they still scored. And, you know, thankfully it's a low scoring game, but still, mm -hmm. you know, the forecaster, I think after a while in the business carries a lot of that understanding of what can happen that in ways that maybe the, other folks who don't have that much experience don't see. And then also just, you know, some accumulated stress injury and, you know, a lot of comments and listening to a lot of people grieving. I think that really is my own stress injury is accumulated minor, but it adds up. Yeah. So here's a question from a listener, our buddy, Brennan Cronin. Um, in your mind, what are some key professional experiences that help to make a good forecaster? Uh, that's a great question from Brendan. Um, I was think I was thinking a lot of different experiences, either in different operations or in different snow climates or in different roles. There's a real value in knowing a particular snowpack and a particular piece of terrain. Um, like you might as an operational forecaster at a ski area or whatever. You know, I'm working right now in a snowpack that's, you know, intermountain, coastal transition. And having worked in places like Ketchum in Colorado, where I had a lot of experience with, you know, depth horse snowpacks and very reactive snowpacks when they were abruptly loaded. Um, I think that really helps you recognize unusual conditions or just gives you a bigger deck of cards to draw on or a bigger deck of experiences to. And so I think you're more likely to recognize unusual conditions for your area. If you've seen a lot of different snow climates and everything else, because you can be hemmed in because you've never seen something before in your area or something's a little unusual, but that may be very typical in another snow climate. And uh, you come to somewhere with that and you're like oh this is what i saw in ketchum i think i know what's about to happen next 
I remember in February 2021, during that month with the horrible 28 fatalities in the U.S., um, we had a fatality here, but we also had really dangerous conditions that developed. And the first day it snowed on this um, facets over this crust, it was just instantly reactive, nothing serious, D1s propagating off a ridge from 50 feet away. And, um, and then two days later, it was more snow and it was even more reactive. And um, I, it just really reminded me of places like Colorado and, and the sawtooths. And so I was much more, I was like, oh, this is bad. We're in for a bad cycle. And we were, it lasted a month. Um, but there's pretty unusual conditions for up here. So I think having that experience in other snowpacks and other operations is really important. The operational part is that you can get stuck doing things the same way, the way you've always done them, or the way that people that taught you to do them are, and can be kind of close to other ideas. And um, going to other operations and other places can really broaden your mind as to how to approach forecasting problems. And that doesn't even need to be like forecasting or snow safety work. I, I think working on the avalanche review, um, serving on the board of the A3, you know, you just get a lot of experience talking to other people. And I think even if you're in the same place, broadening your horizons by participating or, you know, contributing to these other professional efforts can also open your eyes to different ways to do things. And so it doesn't always just have to be you need a new forecasting gig. But so I think having a broad range of experiences so you're prepared for unusual or anomalous conditions or you just do things more creatively. Yeah. You know, one thing that I always really appreciated about ski patrolling was the ski patrol exchanges and you get to go, you know, to a totally different snowpack, different ski area for for a week and see how other operations were doing similar things, but differently. Um, I think that'd be super cool for avalanche forecasters, right? And, and maybe this happens informally, but especially now that the National Avalanche Center with has a more, um, more continuity between avalanche centers and in, in terms of the avalanche forecasting platform. Um, have you ever done that or, or ever thought about doing that with the flathead and somebody else? I would love for some of our forecasters to get to some other operations. Uh, we did have Andy Anderson from the Sierra come up for a week, which, and Andy's a friend and, uh, it was just a really great time. And he's a very curious and, um, person. And so just lots of talking and questions about why things are and whatever. And I think that is tremendously valuable for forecasters. Um, just having somebody with different eyes come in and asking you, and you kind of got to explain your your program and your place, and it's just really good. I think it'd be awesome if we could do more of that. It's just, I don't know, logistically a little difficult, financially a little difficult. Yeah, it's pretty easy to talk about it in the fall or the summer, and then the snow starts to fly and, and things get crazy, and, and uh, yeah, it makes it hard in reality perhaps, but but yeah, maybe a good idea to think about in the future. I'm hoping you could recount a time when you kind of missed something in your forecast and lost some sleep over it. Um, anything come to mind? 
Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do I have to talk about it? <laughs> uh, um, yeah, there were a couple years ago. I think it was 2019 up here in the Flathead, and we're in the middle of an extended storm cycle, a lot of snow. Cam Johnson and I were out snowmobiling, and it was just utterly bottomless. So much snow, snowmobiles just buried five feet deep, and just it just didn't. We had no signs of instability, and um, just so much dry, loose snow. And I remember, I think I called it moderate the next day, maybe considerable at upper elevations, and. Uh, because there just didn't seem to be much going on. And um, Cam and Zach went out into the Flathead Range and found a bunch of D4s that had taken out acres of trees. And I am not exaggerating. Um, just, you know, debris from two sides of the drainage, just so many trees. And, you know, what was going on up high was there was a facet crest combination that we thought was pretty stable that had withstood a previous storm cycle. and it was utterly overloaded and then uh, all that loose dry snow meant that everything entrained a lot more snow and ran a lot farther and was far more destructive and i utterly missed that and um yeah d4 natural on the day that you're forecasting moderate or something is it's embarrassing <laughs> It's still embarrassing, but I did learn a lot from that. All of forecasting is just steeped in uncertainty and variability, and it it can be hard to pinpoint that. And so um, how do you hedge your bets in, in your messaging to the public when you have that that sort of uncertainty? What's your strategy? I think I like to talk about transitions. So if... We have a sense that the problem is at upper elevations and our dividing line between our upper and mid elevations is 6,500 feet. You know, it might have a different danger rating or even a different problem in those two elevation bands. I might talk about, try to frame it as, as you move higher, conditions will get more complex or more dangerous and try to get people to be thinking about that it's not a hard and fast line that as they get higher, things will get more difficult to assess or potentially overlapping problems or the size of slides will get better or bigger, you know, some way so that they're not just trying to rely on an abrupt change like, oh, we're above 6,500 feet or we're above tree line. And um, so just getting people to think about those transitions where conditions might be more uncertain because maybe the layer is lower than you think it is in this drainage. And, or there's runouts or whatever. So I try to write that in a lot. Like as you move up, things will become more complex or more dangerous, or as you move into the shaded aspects. Or I think in a couple forecasts, including the one the day of the accident in February 2021, I was like, you'll get no sign. It's you may not get any sign of instability until you trigger the slope that catches you. Cause it was just super funky. And that is in fact what happened. Um you know, because trying to get people not to think, oh, they can dip their toes in and know when to pull out before the shark bites them. And um, sometimes that's not the case. 
throughout your career, have you seen a change in behavior in backcountry users? You know, like our forecasting platforms and, and messaging has evolved over time. Um, do you, is that working? Well, the social scientists out there would say, since we've never really studied the effectiveness, we don't know. And I think as we saw at ISSW, we still don't even know if avalanche education is effective. There's only been like two studies of the effectiveness of avalanche training. Um, and both of them have been in the last year or two. I like to think it's changed. The, the biggest evidence for that is the fact that there's so much more use than there was in the 90s. And yet our average number of fatalities a year is not keeping pace with that. We had 30 people killed in 1992. And in 2022, there's you know 10 times as many people in the backcountry. If the rate was the same, you'd expect 300 fatalities. And that's not happening. So something is making a difference. Um, I think it is better forecasts, both in terms of we have a better understanding of the avalanche phenomenon and we have a lot more practice communicating it to people. And, um, and then people have a lot more experience and have figured out a lot of better practices. And, um, so I think, yeah, these things are making a difference. Um, but I can only say that in broad terms. I mean, my, mm -hmm. my faith is that it is because I keep doing it. I'll also say that I see, you know, things that you're just like, really? I was in the backcountry here and skinning up to a saddle and a group of skiers came down more or less all at the same time. Like they must have given each other a couple seconds. And, you know, the slope wasn't really that steep or anything, but I would have one on one at a time it. And, uh, you know, and they're all wearing helmets. And you're like, well, really, isn't the hazard here? hazard here isn't hitting your head? Um, or they wear their helmets on the uptrack. The hazard is being is avalanches and the safety practice is not a helmet. It's being, you know, going one at a time. And so sometimes I still see, okay, we need to do a better job. I'm not sure how, but we need to do a better job. Um, I mean, the fundamentals haven't really changed, right? And like we, we have perhaps a lot more things distracting us in this day and age. Um, but really the fundamentals haven't changed at all. Um, I think, I think with more information there, perhaps for some is a tendency to try and kind of outsmart the avalanche problem. Many of us have fixed schedules and there's maybe only a day or two a week that you can go out into the backcountry and gosh darn it, you're going to do it <laughs> no matter the conditions. And so um, do you think people are trying to outsmart the avalanche problem? And have you ever tried to outsmart an avalanche problem? I think if we define like over managing or outsmarting the avalanche problem is, oh, well, you know, the persistent slab problem is only on Northeast aspects and we're on an East aspect. So we're good or Oh, the slope angle here is 32 degrees and it's more likely that 35 is a problem. And as we saw the recent ISSW for me and McCammon, uh, we're not real good at measuring slope angles, I'm certainly not at estimating them. And so, or, oh, if I just follow this little rib right here, um, I, you know, the, the, the avalanche will, any avalanche will be on the sides and break around and it won't get me. And one of the things that's really impressed me looking at fatal avalanches 
almost always is that they how much wider they break than you would have expected you know the accidents that you'd think it would be confined to this feature or that feature and some certainly are but i certainly avalanches involving persistent weak layers often connect around terrain features in such surprising ways and unpredictable ways that i, I think that's where people get into trouble trying to overmanage the hazard is uh thinking that they're in somehow protected in this terrain or whatever and you know snow is it does really crazy things and um it'll connect over ribs and through trees and places that you can't you think are a safe zone and and they're not and so um i think one of the problems with having one of the side effects with having aspect elevation roses which identify the aspects the problem is most likely to be on and the danger rating is split among elevation bands is that it can be easy to assume there's a precision that kind of precision can assume an accuracy that's not there and um you know would need to leave wide safety margins especially when you're dealing with persistent weak layers and hard slabs oh that's really well said blaze yeah i i, I know that kind of one my one of my personal red flags is when i start to justify my my reasoning and just kind of as you described well the avalanche forecast said that this problem didn't exist here and 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 when i do that i just am trimming my margins thinner and thinner and thinner and i think carl berkland uh told me one time you know and he said it publicly that you know instead of just taking the fine tip pen and marking a line and walking right to the line find the fattest sharpie that you can make make a big fat mark and then take three steps back from it right and, and yeah. so like i think that that's kind of like a good mentality that i've used when i find myself trimming those margins either consciously or unconsciously you know yeah one of the things that i've noticed in the backcountry is there are people that have a lot of people go into the backcountry under relatively similar conditions most of the time. It's like upper end of moderate, lower end of considerable because that's when what you get when it snows. And they develop a set of practices that hasn't gotten them into trouble. And those practices seem to work pretty well for the conditions they're in. But if you think about it, you know, that window is really narrow of conditions and practices. And the actual possible range of conditions and practices is so much larger. And if you keep doing the same thing all the time, you're sooner or later you're going to get into trouble because it's not the same all the time. And the people that impressed me, like um, Zach Guy, the former director here, who's now in Crested, back in Crested Butte, um, and you know skied with him a, a bunch down there and up here. He had an incredibly has an incredibly wide range of behaviors. Like as it gets towards considerable and high, he is on lockdown, and um, you know, like strict, very careful. Um, but as it gets towards low, like he goes big, and it's like that kind of range of conditions. Like I think it's really hard. Like you talk about when you only have two days to think about. Well, I have to limit my behaviors right now because conditions are such you know like, but i only have two days to ski and the answer to that might be but you have a lifetime to ski and um 
this weekend is, you know, a great way to get experience doing something else. You don't have to like push it this weekend. You have a lifetime to snowmobile or ride or ski or whatever. And, and developing habits and practices that are really dynamic that actually meet the conditions that are out there, um, is something I wish I could figure out ways to teach people. Um, you know, like I don't do the same thing every time. I mean, there's days I'm out pushing it and skiing more consequential lines, like a lot, but you know, on those conditions. And then other times I'm tiptoeing through the woods and it's all the same. It's all learning about snow. There's a line, um, the East face of Mount Penrose here in the Flathead range. Um, I saw it on my first tour in this area in New Year's in 1995. And, um, it's this massive steep east facing 40 degree plus some places face. And I always wanted to ski it. And, um, I think I finally skied it in 2021. Um, I mean, I was gone for 12 years, but it took me gaining a lot of, uh, experience to make that kind of decision. And, um, waiting for the right conditions and yeah you know you have a lifetime yeah it's kind of like transitioning from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset right like yeah and truly playing the long game here it was probably really gratifying skiing that line 25 plus years after you first saw it oh yeah it's a great line but like just the fact that i'd waited so long and it felt really good to be on it that day i felt really comfortable um, yeah, that made it extra special. Yeah, that's great. So let's talk a little bit more about your work in, in your writing realm with the snowy torrents. Got a, a good question here from Halstead Morris. Um, what's the most interesting avalanche that you wrote about in snowy torrents? And I, I should add that they're not all fatalities, right? And, and a plug for the book. This is an amazing resource to learn from other people. Um, and if you haven't picked up a copy of Snowy Torrance, you should. But what? just maybe highlight a, an interesting avalanche that you wrote about in the latest edition. I think one of the things that struck me writing it is, um, I'll first I'll start with the most interesting year that I've written about. And that was 1992. That was the year avalanche fatalities spiked in this country from eight to 12 to upper twenties, um, and continued at that level for a long time. And I think in a lot of ways, you could see that year as the, the nick point or the, the transition to the modern avalanche era, um, was 1992. There are three accidents that year, um, that had a really big effect on the avalanche world as we know it um uh eddie immel was killed he's a plow driver on red mountain pass in the east riverside slide and um there had been other plow drivers killed there and other motorists um and the snowshed had been um marked or noted as too short for decades and um that accident was the impetus for the ciic and a lot of avalanche highway programs in this country in general. And in the 30 years since, there's only been one motorist killed on a highway and two or three avalanche snow workers on highways. 
which is if you look at previous year's data, um, that's a big change. Um, so 92 was significant for, uh, that accident and what it, uh, uh, what came out of it. Another accident a little bit earlier in the winter, which I personally remember because, um, of the folks that were involved and my mentors in Salt Lake and the effect it had on them and was the Talking Mountain Cirque accident in the LaSalle Mountains. Four people were killed, um, including the local avalanche forecaster. That was a case where they just kept pushing a little slope angles a little bit higher and a uh, persistent slab problem and um, probably trying to overmanage the hazard a little bit or cut it a little too close. But four people were killed. There were three survivors. Um, it was a long, drawn-out process to recover people. The people that were recovering the victims were friends with the victims. Uh, some of them uh, had taught the victims in avalanche class earlier that winter, at least one of the people. And it had a tremendous toll on the people that were involved. But it also uh, sped the development of the National Avalanche Center, which at that time was kind of a local effort in the Wasatch for what was called the Center of Excellence that Doug Abermite and John were developing. And it spurred the development of the National Avalanche Center and the U.S. Forest Service Regional Avalanche Forecasting Program. Um, it was one of the things that came out of that. So 92 was a really big year for that. And then there was also an accident that year. But if I told you a summary of the accident and hadn't led into it by saying it was 92, I think people might have a hard time. Like if I said there was an accident and it involved uh, a group of five or six mostly young men, also I think there was one woman involved, um, in the side country of a ski area with um, cameras on an April day who were trying to put together, you know, a ski film and edit. And um, we're going to ski some steep 40-something degree terrain. And one of them was killed. And I gave you five years to pick from, 2022, 2017, 2005, and 1992, the last answer people would get would be 92, and it was 1992. I think that accident, the victim was unfortunately roundly criticized, um, and I distinctly remember this because I was in Salt Lake at the time, and um, I remember my experience of that accident and the criticism of the party. Um, a guy I know is one of the first responders there, uh, Randy Trover. And cause it was just outside this out of bounds. It's snowbird. It's actually part of the ski area now. And then going back and reading all the accidents accounts in 2000 and, you know, almost 30 years later and being like, wow, I'm not sure this guy deserves this criticism. This is what happens every day now. And I think. The lesson there is that the community, this professional community, I don't think really recognized what was on its doorsteps. Um, that was a harbinger of a lot of things. And there was just a lot of criticism of the victim for, oh, you need to be an expert and you only ski that at this time and blah, blah, blah. And people ski that terrain all the time and they have cameras all the time. Um, they're out with their friends and 
it looks like a normal day in the side country now and like 30 ski areas across the country, right? Maybe more. And yet we didn't, as a community, really recognize what that that was a big advertisement for the next 30 years. And um, yeah, so I think 1992 was probably the year that modern avalanche world came into being in this country. 93 was the year snowmobile death spiked, but basically those two years are when everything changed. Hmm. Yeah. It seems like, you know, we're, we're all, we can all default to being quick to judge other people's actions in the backcountry, And I'd like to think that the culture is changing I, I think in that regard. And I, I think it is, yeah, you know, I think it is. Um, but like you said, kind of in the beginning of this interview, you know, like looking at a lot of these accidents, many times you can employ some em- empathy and say that could have been me. I mean, when I read the snowy torrents, like I can put myself in many of those situations and, and maybe hope that I would make a different decision, but you know, maybe I wouldn't. <laughs> I read that. And every time I, I'm like, wow, I, I could, I, I could see myself having made that bad decision. Um, I come back from a day out and I'm like, I don't know. So, yeah, I think we are as a community have gotten better about that, but um, we still do a better job when people are more like us. Um, And I think there's still, it can be easy to criticize people that are farther away in place, time, culture, and other them and criticize them. Um, I think we're doing better. You know, one of the ways we wrote Snowy Torrents was to try to write them not in dry case studies, but to really draw people in to tell stories that, you know, have plot twists and climaxes that hurt and something bad happened. Yeah. So that people can kind of get a sense of that. So Blaze, you've you've carried a lot with you over your career. And, you know, I can tell from talking to you that that some of this stuff weighs pretty heavy on you and you know there's perhaps a underlying factor of of stress injury that a lot of us carry right and it's it's kind of sometimes it pops up in different ways for different people um do you see yourself as stress injured and and if so how do you try and manage that and integrate some of these these poor outcomes that you've experienced into positive change you know i've lost you know i've had students in classes and coworkers and um so many people i know involved um in fatal accidents or others and then also just talking to people that i don't know that are strangers that are um and maybe it's because I have interviewed so many people for these case studies. I think I do carry a sadness or a um, a sense of the seriousness, like I said earlier, of what we're doing. Um, and there, there's resources, and you know, like the Avalanche Resiliency Project, which um, Gabrielle Antonioli um, prompted, and she came to me and she's like, "Do you think this is a good idea?" And I'm like, "Ah." Why didn't we think of this sooner? Um, you know, it's like one of those like, ugh, so obvious when somebody thinks about it. Um, I think there's a lot more resources in a lot of ways. And, you know, I do my own work 
to try to work through that. But, you know, I, I love being out in the mountains in the winter in new snow, and I still get an incredible joy out of that. And I still get an incredible joy out of, you know, summoning a peak in the springtime with a big steep line that scares me. Um, and just, or just tr- going into a new drainage and the serendipity of finding somewhere that you never expected to be such good skiing and the magic of that. Um, because of course it all goes away, you know, when the sun comes out or, uh, something, it's all so ephemeral. And, um, the magic of that is still, uh, that's still much stronger than, uh, the grief or sadness that I carry with it. I mean, I think it tempers my behavior, but, um, you know, I I still, I love being out in the snow and I can't, that'll never, I don't know. That hasn't changed. So, yeah. It's cool. Just watching your, watching your face. Of course the listeners can't see it, but like just blaze kind of thinking about this is, is making him have a huge smile and just a, uh, emitting a, a glow here. So I think there's, there's a lot of therapeutic qualities of, of those feelings of being in the mountains and, and yeah, um, being in the same environment that can be so harsh yep. as well, you know, and, and turn on a dime. It's, that's part of the magic of it too. Yeah. The dark magic side. Yeah. The one thing I do try not to do is I realize like, you know, hypervigilance is a total sign of, classic sign of PTSD, right? And like, I'm out there and I'm like, got, you know, a new ski partner's like, look out for that train trap and look out for this. And, um, <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, why am I teaching them to be traumatized? Um, maybe I could just, you know, I, I think that's the the other danger that I have to be aware of. It's like um, my own hypervigilance from all of this stuff is, yeah, maybe I don't need to pass that on to people I or I can pass on some of those lessons in ways that, aren't like teach them to be traumatized because <laughs> sometimes i wonder um you know like oh my god a pre-mortem you know we're gonna trigger the slide went up in that gully and then what are people gonna say about me yeah that's classic sign of stress injury and i don't need to pass that part on to people yeah that's good that you're aware <laughs> of that for sure <laughs> it's kind of funny sometimes <laughs> blaze what do you do in the summer you do some mountain guiding? I do. Um, as a director, I have a nine-month-a-year job, though. I kind of work a few hours every week in the summertime, kind of keeping the lights on, answering questions or planning, or maybe we have hiring or weather station. But um, I have been working as a hiking and alpine apprentice alpine guide for a number of years now, and uh, that's a whole different game it's very uh much more one-on-one decision making and um yeah it's it's just a nice and it allows me to be out in the mountains in different ways and i don't know i like it so a lot of summers we were working on snowy torrents and i'm not doing that now which is kind of nice yep are you going to be part of the the next volume uh spencer and emma and i met in bend and uh started talking about like, if we did another version, what would it look like? And, um, five, 10 minutes into the conversation, nobody'd, nobody'd tap, tapped out. And I was like, Oh, we're doing this. Um, 
I think we have a lot of conversations about how we want to do it differently. I think there's a lot of things about snowy torrents that have worked. And I think we've pushed the model that of how we do it the way it is as far as we can. And I think there's a lot of ways we can improve and make it more accessible and usable for people. We could bring in other voices. We could um, maybe do more multimedia stuff. I don't know, but there's, um, I think there's a lot of ways we're still talking about how that might be, but I think we'd like to do another version, but we'd like to um, do it differently. We may not highlight every, we may not write every accident. I don't, I don't know. We may pick more salient accidents, but yeah, we're talking about it. So cool. Yeah. Look forward to hearing more about that in the coming years. Blaze made this interview really easy for me. We've been talking about doing this for almost a year now. And uh, he sent me a bunch of questions, which which is super nice as the host, because it's always good to, to, to bring up topics that the interview interviewee wants to talk about. And one of these questions I thought was was strikingly good. And that was, who are some of the unsung heroes in our community? Yeah, I think... You know, this is one of the things I think about working in different operations in different places is you get a really broad sense of the community. And it's not just the people that are most visible, either through publications or other things and um, how much I've learned from some of those people. In Colorado, I had the pleasure of working with Josh Hirschberg and Colin Mitchell, who both have remarkably deep experience and really good sense of snow. And um, Josh is at NWAC now, just real quiet, not limelight seekers, but who I learned a lot about forecasting or just was able to check my forecast against because I think they have such a good sense of snow. And then Scott Tepfer, who's got just phenomenal weather forecasting skills, how that guy managed to figure out that Monarch Pass is going to get 11 inches when the weather forecast calls for two and they get 11 inches is I don't know. He's got such a depth of experience and he's been skiing that depth horse snowpack in Colorado for 40, 50 years. And uh, he is also a person that has a wide range of practices on a daily basis. And then Bex, but um, I can't highlight Bex's on Sun because she's a diva now. But there's also, I think I've, had some experience at a number of ski areas where people are like really focused on the particular patch of terrain they work in. And people like Patty Morrison, who was at Stevens Pass for years and just as a relentlessly curious person, I think, um, always trying to learn more. And then Karen San, Kason, who we lost in the last year or so, um, at Aspen, um, Highlands and Aspen Mountain, um, did a lot of great work there. So, and then up here in the Flathead, you know, the Burlington Northern program, Ted Steiner and Adam Clark have such experience. Ted was on ski patrol at WMR, known as the Big Mountain back then in the 80s. And um, Adam has worked for the Going to the Sun Road. He's worked at the ski area. He's worked in the backcountry program. He's worked the railroad. He just has um, such great experience and is such a great person to be in the backcountry with. There's a lot of people like that but there i think there's a lot of unsung heroes and or local heroes in um you know in these communities and 
they're not the most visible, but they're often the people I wind up learning a lot from. And uh, I think that's one of the nicest things about working in different places is getting to work with so many different people. I mean, CIC in particular has 30 forecasters now, but, <laughs> you know. Blaze, what advice would you have for, this is actually another listener question, uh, specifically in the Flathead Valley for younger riders that are looking for some mentorship. And this is maybe transferable to, to other locales as well. Yeah, I'm going to speak a little more broadly. Um, you know, I didn't come into the avalanche world with the, what was at the time the standard background, which was a ski patroller uh, for many years, who then moved on to forecasting or something like that. I mean, you know, I was in West Virginia on handmade snow. <laughs> um, and it it certainly felt like it was a, just felt really hard to break into daily forecasting for a long time. It felt really hard to do that. And I talked to a lot of people now that are experiencing the same thing. So I know that, you know, there's ultimately more people than there are jobs and, um, and people can feel like it's very difficult to break in. I think one thing I would suggest to people like, um, for me working on the avalanche review first as assistant editor, and then it got dropped in my lap as a, as editor, um, was great working on the a3 board i think there's a lot of ways to be involved in this work and contribute to the work that don't have to be in the most obvious jobs and that will bring people a broader experience than uh just trying to bang your head on the door so i think being open to those kind of things um i think mentoring is a little different now you know, I had was lucky to have good mentors, but, you know, I'm a white guy that went to a liberal arts college and most of my mentors were white guys that went to liberal arts colleges. And it's different. I'm a middle-aged guy and there's a lot of young women and other people trying to get into the field and those social dynamics are different. And I think that can make mentorship. Um, it's easy in this community to say, oh, just get a mentor. And it's like, mm, it's a little harder than it than it might think given the diversity of people that want to be in the field now. And it's a little trickier. It's just not as casual, I think, to mentor people. And so I think it can be hard for people to find a mentor. Uh, mentorship is chosen by both the mentor and the mentee. So you can't just attach yourself to somebody. Um, but I think you can go out and get a lot of experience getting coached um, in you know, short-term coached in something um, by people visiting operations. And a young woman that uh, last year that came through and she was just on a tour of all these operations. And I think, you know, she's just trying to get into the field and she just put herself on the road and visited a lot of operations. And so I think that can help. The other thing that I see a lot in job applications is people like, oh yeah, I ski in the backcountry a lot. And I'm like, I recommend to people that they, if they want to be, in the forecasting world, the backcountry forecasting world, that they submit a lot of observations to their local center, to wherever they go. For one, it um, gets you thinking like a forecaster and it demonstrates whether you can think like a forecaster. And it's also a record that you've been out. And so if you're traveling or wherever, just, or even just your local area, I think just putting in observations can be a very useful way of 
you know, learning what it's like to be a forecaster, making sense of what you see in the snow on a given day. And then I guarantee you that if you're putting in regular good observations at an avalanche center, you're going to get phone calls and emails from people because they're like, oh, good to hear from this person. Or I'm going to ask them some more questions. So it's a great way to contribute and develop one's own record and experience. Awesome. That's some great advice, Blaze. Anything that I haven't asked you that you were hoping I would? I do. You know, I think I'll go back to this, emphasize the point I made before is that I am after 25 years in the business, a lot of people I know have had serious or been involved in serious accidents. And a lot of people I don't know I've talked to is, you know, I, I think that seriousness is something I carry with me. And I sometimes wish people were a little more aware of that um, when they made decisions. Um, but I also, like you saw, I love being outside in a new place and new snow. Yeah. I still love that very much and, you know, keeps me going. Plus the thing with forecasting is every year it's different and it's never the same. And suddenly find yourself applying, like remembering something from five, 10 years back, like, ah, this is another one of those. And I think that can happen if you're not doing it for the long term, making those insights. So that's what keeps me going. And the people. Right on, Blaze. Well, uh, it's been great to catch up and and have you share some of your experiences over a, a long and varied career in in the snow. So I appreciate you coming on and making the time today. Uh, it's always good to talk to you, Caleb. Yeah, I hope I hope we get to get out and share the skin track here someday soon. That'd be awesome. And it's just, I think it's, um, you know, the avalanche hour has really come a long way. And uh, I think it's a real, as you saw, um, I think the award you got uh, from the A3 is well-deserved. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to con- contribute to this community. And, you know, like Gabby coming up with the resiliency project, like the people that often contribute to this community are not always the people at the center of it right away. Like some of our best ideas come from the fringes of this community. And, um, you know, now we all expect to see an avalanche hour podcast, you know, all the time, but that was a new thing. And, um, so I just, I love seeing that kind of innovation from people and, you know, the people that are trying to get into the field, remember there's a lot you can contribute. Um, that could be really meaningful from the fringes or seeming fringes. Yeah. Right on. Well, thanks blaze. And, uh, hope you have a great start to the winter up there in the flathead and, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yep. Thanks. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Have you heard about the American Avalanche Association's current sweepstakes? It's called the D5 Sweepstakes, and your donations will get you some tickets to win some incredible prizes, including heli skiing, cat skiing, avalanche airbag packs, skis, boards, and so much more. To buy tickets, click on the banner at the A3 website, AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org. The tickets are available until 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on February 29th, So go buy some tickets today and support the A3.
I wanted to give a big shout out, big thanks to Keith and Shelly Schuler and the rest of the folks at Interwest Insurance for their continued support of the podcast. Sure do miss skiing with you guys. On today's episode, you heard music by our buddy Gravy. You can find more of Gravy's tunes at gravytunes.bandcamp.com. Thanks, Gravy. It's been a little bit quiet over in the review corner for a while now. I know. It's been on your list of things to do. It's wintertime. You're busy. But if you've been enjoying what we're doing here, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Go give us a follow on Instagram. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. And that's the best way to keep up to date with current release of episodes. If you want to reach out, connect, or send us any feedback, hit us up at the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to tune in on March 1st with Dom Baker as he highlights some mentorship programs that are landing well to our north. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and be nice to each other out there. See ya.